Good morning. So good to be with you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, man, if we haven't met before, my name is Brian Guy. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist Hanford. And like Pastor Peter said, man, if you're new, thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Uh, this week has been crazy. I am running off of high amounts of caffeine right now. Uh, m one of my best friends got married yesterday. His name is Chase. He actually helps out with our high school ministry, and I had the honor and privilege of officiating his wedding. So, man, I'm so excited for him and, and this, uh, this new chapter in his life. And while I was at his wedding and, and officiating and doing all of that, I started to think about my, my own um, story with, with my wife and how we met and all of that. We've been married, oh, I was supposed to figure this out during the break. We, we've been married at least eight years, uh, maybe nine. She's not present this morning. Don't tell her I forgot how many years we've been married. Um, but, but that's how many years we've been married. We, we knew each other about four years before that. So a good chunk of our life has been spent together. And I was thinking about how it is that we met. And you see, Back in my early 20s, I worked for the city of Kingsburg as their pool manager. And part of that is I, I was um, trained to train lifeguards. And she was taking a lifeguarding class, and I was helping teach the lifeguarding class. And I know what you're thinking. It wasn't shady. I promise nothing suspicious happened. Um, in fact, we barely even talked. And I didn't really know her throughout the week. And near the end of the two weeks, I think we might have had a conversation, and that's what, I was like, oh, this girl's really cool, and then I did what anyone would do in my shoes. When she turned in her final test, I just took a look at what her name was, and I jumped on social media, and I was like, I got to figure out who this girl is. So I found her on Facebook, because Facebook was big at the time, um, and so I, I go to Facebook, and I see her profile, and sure enough, on her profile, there's like a Bible verse, and, and she says that she's a Christian. I'm like, oh, man, amazing. And at that time in my life, I was in a discipleship program where I was living with like four, four other guys. And it was a very in, intentional discipleship program where we're embedded, not just in, in Christian community, but being active in our community and, and sharing the gospel and what have you. And so like for me, I was on fire for God. And so when I saw that, I immediately sent her a message with just one question. And I asked her, what is God doing in your life? That was it. Nothing else. I got a novel in response. Now, I must confess, I, I don't necessarily do that anymore with strangers. I, I, don't, I don't go up to people that I just met and I ask them, hey, what is God doing in your life? And you might be thinking, but Brian, you're a pastor. Shouldn't, shouldn't, if anyone should be doing that, shouldn't it be you? I'm sorry to confess, but um, no, I, I don't go up to random strangers. I don't feel like my, my gift is evangelism. Now, there are some amazing people in this church who do have the gift of evangelism. Like, I think of Dave Fox. Man, you can, you can chat with Dave Fox or Mike Watkins, right? And you can, they can sit down with a complete stranger for five minutes and become best friends. And then they're like, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? They're just completely fearless. Like, it's amazing. The boldness that they have, they just, they're, they're willing to, complete stranger, can I tell you about Jesus? Without embarrassment, They'll proudly tell you what it is God is doing in their lives. But I recognize that that isn't all of us. For most of us, talking about God, talking about faith, talking about supernatural things that happen in our lives is not something that's normal. And it's definitely not something that a lot of us are comfortable with. 
Now, when I say talk about these things, I'm not talking about sharing them in your small group. I think, I think we're pretty comfortable with that. I hope you're comfortable with that, right? Like there's a difference between being in a small group of believers and sharing this is what God is doing in my life than being at work with your coworker of five, ten years and saying, hey, um, can I tell you what God's been doing in my life? Those are two completely different environments. And one's comfortable, one might be a little bit more uncomfortable depending on your context. So I think, because I was, I was trying to figure out, like, why is this? I mean, I'm a little different. I work in a church office, so it's a little bit easier for me to talk about what God is doing in my life with, with our um, team. But I was like, why is it it's so difficult for us to talk about what God's doing in our lives with the people that God has placed in our lives? Whether that be at work, whether that be at school, whether that be at our kids' sporting event, whatever it is. Why is this so difficult for us? And please, if you have an answer... My email is just brianguidefbhanford.org. I would love your input. Um, because as I'm trying to analyze this, I thought, I thought of two reasons. And if you think of something outside of my two reasons, I would love to know it. But the first reason I thought of was that perhaps, perhaps we're not relying on God as much as we should. And we'll jump into that in a second. But, but maybe we're not relying on God as much as we should. And the second is a pretty natural one, and I think it's fear. Let's talk about that first one for a moment. We have a self-sufficiency problem. What I mean by that is that um, we have this desire to, to be um, not just able but capable of doing things on our own. Like it's embedded in who we are as a society and as a culture. We do not want to be a burden to someone else. We want to be able to be seen as someone who can do the job without asking for help. Like think about your workplace. How annoyed do you get when someone comes up to you knowing, like they're asking you how to do a basic task. And you know, you're like, oh great, here comes Brian. He's going to ask me how to open a Word document. This is great. I'm going to spend 20 minutes teaching him how to open a Word document. And we get frustrated because we're like, man, this person should know how to do this or they should know how to figure out an answer. Like, have you heard of Google? Like, you could just type it in, like, how do I do this? And boom, there it is. There's an answer. Because we value this, this, this uh, self-dependency. We don't want to rely on other people. Now consider this, we will either tackle it by ourselves, like whatever it is, we will tackle the problem by ourselves and, and we'll get it done, right? Like we'll make it look good, we'll fix it. Or we're, we're going to tackle it by ourselves and we're going to make it like functional, but it's not going to be working the way it's supposed to. Or we're going to tackle something and it's going to be worse than when we approached it and we have to call like a professional to come fix our mess. Like this is especially true with DIY projects. I imagine probably a lot of ladies like, oh man, let me tell you about my husband. He tried to rewire our living room. It's been three months. We still don't have lighting. Now we're calling an electrician. It's like double the cost. Okay. Not talking about that per se. I'm actually talking about like the soul. Like when I'm talking about how we try to like white knuckle things and we try to fix things on our own or we try to just get through our day on our own. I'm talking about our soul. I'm talking about who we are, core as a person and our relationships with other people and our relationship with God. I think too often we're, we're trying to hold ourselves together with like duct tape, and we're like, oh yeah, it's working, it's working. And God's like, man, if you would just allow me to, 
I would not only fix you, I would make you new. But here we are, we're like, hey, God, look what I did. Doesn't it look good? He's like, oh, yeah, sure. It's like when your five-year-old brings you this beautiful finger painting, and you're like, oh, yeah, that looks so good. I could do way better. <laughs> and then what ends up happening, which I think is a good thing, is oftentimes when we try to do things by our, by our own efforts, by our own will, we usually end up failing, and then we end up in counseling, and we're trying to work together with our counselor to figure out, man, why, are, why am I the way I am? Like, what are all these problems? And ultimately, it all points us back to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I really value counseling. And I really wish that a lot more people were in counseling. But ultimately, what's going to happen is counseling is going to show you your brokenness and hopefully point you and say, hey, Jesus is your answer. You're trying to do this too much on your own. Jesus is the answer. So, that's the first reason. I think we, tr- we're, we're, we want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to rely on other people. And that overflows into our life with, lives with God. God, I can handle this on my own. I don't need your help. And because of that, we don't have anything to share. What's God doing in my life? I don't know. I'm trying to do it myself. That's the first one. Second one. Second one is fear. I think the reason sometimes we don't have anything to share is because of fear. I think we fear how we're going to be perceived by people who are not believers, people who are not Christians. It's, it's not common for non-religious people to talk about spiritual things. And we fear that if we're going to bring it up, then it's going to place us as like the other. It's going it's to place us outside normalcy within whatever group we're in, whether that be work, whether it be our friends, whatever it is. If you start talking about spiritual things like, man, God's done this in my life, they're going to be like, oh, oh man, here comes Brian. Let's, this is the weirdo. This guy talks about things you can't see. I don't know. And so there's this fear that we're going to be put on the outside. Or perhaps deep down inside you're afraid someone's going to challenge you. You're like, let me tell you about something God has done in my life. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, that sounds like this. Have you considered this? Are you sure? I don't think that was God. I think, and you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I can't explain it. I can't, I can just only tell you what I, what I experienced like, I know that I know that I know, like, I've, I've experienced this. There's no logical explanation. And they're pushing you, and you're like, I don't know how to defend it. It's a rational fear. You're not alone in these fears. I think a lot of us feel them, whether it be at work or, like I said, at, at your kid's sporting event, whether it be, like, like, just friend group outside of normal church friends. In these moments, we hold back from talking about spiritual things. And this fear, it it cripples us from sharing the things God is doing in our lives. My goal isn't to turn you all into evangelists. That's not my goal. I think evangelism is a spiritual gift. My goal this morning is to help you see that God is at work in your life. Or God wants to be at work in your life. And we have not just the authority, we have the obligation to share that with the people that God has placed in our lives. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. 
And if you brought your Bible, you're like, I have no idea where that is. No worries. If you open up to the front, you'll see a table of contents, and you'll see two major sections. The old, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Old Testament is just everything before Jesus came. And the New Testament is the life of Jesus and the start of the church. And Acts is all about the start of the church. So it's going to be in the New Testament. When you get there, large numbers are the chapters and smaller numbers are the verses. So one more time, that's Acts chapter 4 starting at the beginning in verse 1. And I'm really excited about this text. Um, I think there's a lot of nuance that's going on, or at least a lot of like cultural elements that are lying underneath the surface that for someone in 2024, you might easily just read over and skim over and not realize, man, this, this is a dynamic text. And there's, there's some crazy stuff happening here. So I'm excited that we get to dive into it together and explore just the riches of scripture. So we're right in the middle of a story. Back in chapter three, Peter and John were going to the temple. And as they were approaching the temple gates, there's a man who, who it says was lame from birth. Essentially, his, his legs aren't working. And so he's, he's begging at the temple gate. And Peter and John are like, hey, we don't have money, but what we have uh, is power in the name of Jesus, so we heal you. And then this, this man is healed. He's been, he's been unable to walk his whole life, and all of a sudden he stands up and he walks into the temple courts with Peter and John, and it says that he's actually jumping, he's, he's praising the name of God. He is ecstatic, like his life has been forever changed. And people recognize, they're like, this guy used to sit, wait, hold on, this guy's walking? This makes no sense. So naturally, this huge crowd is drawn. They, they exit the, the, the temple courts a little bit. And so now there's this huge crowd gathered, and, and Peter and John, they just, gospel message right there. That's where our, our text is picking up this morning. So we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Let's pause there. Let's unpack it a little bit. So there's these people that Luke, who is the author of Acts, there's these people that enter the story here. We have the priests. We have captain of the temple guard. We have Sadducees. Now these people are very important. I don't just mean important for the text. I mean in, in Jewish society, these people are very important. They're members of, um, I did this last first service. For some reason, the word aristocracy, as soon as I read it, my mind's like, how do you pronounce that word? Aristocracy. They are members of the aristocracy at the time, that being the ruling class. And oftentimes, all these people were family, and they all worked hand in glove with the Roman government. So we have the priests. Luke talk, He says priests. And what he's talking about, this is a reference to the chief priests. And the chief priests, they were appointed by the Roman governors. In fact, Anas, who will be mentioned later in verse 6, was the first high priest assigned in AD 6. The chief priestly family belonged to the Sadducees, and you're going to see all this intermingling here in this text. The chief priests belonged to the, to the Sadducees, who we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, the captain of the temple guards... 
The temple guards were often members of the chief priest's family. See that again? That, that, yep. So, temple guards were often members of the chief priest's family. They were second in command, just under the high priest. And their job was to maintain order in the temple courts because the Roman government says, hey, we don't want disorderly conduct. So you keep everybody in line. They say, hey, we're going to make sure no one gets out of line. Okay? So that's their, their job, their role. Now, the Sadducees... The Sadducees were the highest ranking religious sect of Judaism at the time. They were members of the high priestly family and constituted the aristocracy in Jerusalem. They were also members of the Sanhedrin, which will be mentioned in verse 15 later on. They collaborated with the Roman authorities and opposed religious or national, nationalist aspirations that would clash and cause pain for the Jewish people. They said, hey, just, just calm down, just relax. The Roman government, they love us, don't anger them. So that was their role. The Sadducees were at odds with another group called the Pharisees. You read, them, you read about them a lot in scripture. The Pharisees had a, a, a doctrine of resurrection that at the end, the very end, everyone's going to be resurrected again. And the Sadducees say, hey, no, 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 no. There are, there's no resurrection. And so that doctrine really divide, divides and splits them and they clash on that. These people, the priests, the temple guards, the Sadducees, are some of the most important and powerful people in all of Jerusalem. In fact, these were the people Jesus was handed over to when Judas betrayed him. You see in Luke 22, we're not going to go there, but in Luke 22, Judas went to the temple guards and conspired, hey, this is how I'm going to get Jesus into your hands. This is how we're going to end his ministry. And you can see in John 18, this is actually really interesting. In John 18, you see that Peter and John snuck into the high priest's courtyard to watch Anas question Jesus and then send him to Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. So my point in bringing all of this up is that the last time all of these people were together was when Jesus was betrayed, had some phony trial, and was sentenced to execution. All of the people who were taking place right here that Luke is talking about in Acts, these were these, the, couple months back. You see, I think that for the powerful, for the elite, they didn't want their authority or their power challenged. And so they went to extreme measures to squash Jesus, to squash his ministry, and say, no, this isn't spreading any further. And now here they are, a few months later, the name of Jesus is back, there's healings happening in his name, and there are people rising up to follow him. So they're feeling threatened. Now that we know who's involved, it's easier to see how they were disturbed by the apostles' teachings, right? Like the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. Here are Peter and John, and they're saying, hey, Jesus came back to life three days later after, after being crucified. They're like, hold on, red flag. That's not supposed to be taught in our temple courts. In verse 1, it says that they came up to Peter and John. Now, the original meaning is actually one of hostility. Like, there's a huge difference between me walking up to Pastor Jeff and a huge difference between me walking up to Pastor Jeff to fight him, right? That there, that there's a hostile intent there. Sorry, Pastor Jeff, I would never fight you. I love you, brother. 
But there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference there. And the meaning here, there's a, there's a hostile intent of them approaching Peter and John. You see, like we talked about, the captain of the temple guards, he's supposed to keep everything orderly. And all of a sudden, it's almost like chaos. Look at how many people were around. I mean, we'll get to that. But this huge crowd is gathering. Disorderly conducts are going to come if they don't stop it soon, right? So they do. And the result of this miracle, of this teaching, it says that more people were being saved. Now, it says that like 5,000 were added. I'm not going to get into it. Like, we don't know if that's 5,000 more were added to the already 3,000. Like, doesn't matter if it's another 2,000. The point that Luke is trying to make is that, man, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Thousands of people are starting to follow Jesus, to repent and turn toward Jesus. I think that's the point here. So the next day, the Sanhedrin is summoned. We're going to get to the text here in just a minute. The next day, the Sanhedrin is summoned. That's, that's what is meant in verse 5 when it talks about, it says that the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, here's what you need to know about the Sanhedrin. It was the highest assembly in Jerusalem. The supreme legislative, judicial, and executive body of leading citizens. This is the most elite and powerful group that existed, not just in Jerusalem, but in Jewish culture, society, religion. The, the, they're it. So with that, with that knowledge on the forefront of your mind, let's read the next section. It says that the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander and others of the high priestly family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name did you do this? Let's pause here for just a moment. We're going to keep reading but this is a really cool moment where something Jesus said is about to be fulfilled. You see before Jesus um, before Jesus was crucified and, and, and um, ascended into heaven, he had a, another conversation with his disciples, preparing them for what was to come, what it meant to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples, and he was trying to prepare them. So in Luke 21, verses 12 through 15, Jesus told them, but before all of this, like before end times, before everything comes to pass, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That was Luke 21. So with that, let's look at Peter's response. The Sanhedrin asked him, by what power or what name did you do this? Here is their response. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... 
It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. You see, Peter and John recognize that the very council they are in front of is the same council that sentenced Jesus to death not very long ago. So at the start of their response, they tread lightly. They address them kindly. Elders and rulers of the people. They're showing respect. Then they they call upon a cultural element for Greco-Roman culture. You see, in in this culture, there is this this reciprocity that happens. Like, if you do something good for someone, the expectation is you get a thank you in response. But it's not just like behind closed doors. It's meant to be something that helps you in your social standing. So when you do something good, a thank you happens in response. And they're calling upon that. You'll see it almost in an ironic way. Like, are, are we being questioned for doing a good thing when we should be receiving a thank you? This person was just healed. They are now becoming a, a contributing member to society. They're no, more, no longer, like, like milking the system. They, they are helping, and you're questioning us? I think a thank you would be better. And then from there, Peter uses this as a doorway to preach the gospel, to tell them the good news about Jesus. Now take note of Peter's boldness. His answer condemns the council for their actions. Like, you crucified Jesus. And then he blatantly speaks about Jesus' resurrection, which we know the Sadducees, part of the Sanhedrin, they reject any doctrine of the resurrection. But who are they to say, no, that's not true? Because then they're going to say, where's his body then? Oh, I don't know. We lost it. Well, I can tell you he, he resurrected. Show us the proof. Our proof is in this guy who just was healed in the name of Jesus. So they blatantly bring up this doctrine of resurrection saying Jesus came back to life three days later. And they attribute that man's healing to Jesus. And then they end by dismissing the, the Jewish um, works-based system of righteousness. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. You think it's by perfectly following the law that you receive righteousness, that you receive favor in the sight of God. He says, no, 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 it's in Jesus. Like, there is no other name under heaven given to us. Given. You don't earn it. It's given. It's a divine origin. And he's dis- they're dismantling so much of, of, of the, the systems and Jewish oppression that, is, that has been set up. They're trying to dismantle that right here. And let's see how the Sanhedrin responds to such a bold response. As we continue, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. 
Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Aside from the corruption that existed within the Sanhedrin, here's, here's what I really want to point back to for just a moment. Go back to verse 7. In verse 7, the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John, by what power or what name did you do this? The you in that sentence, in that verse, has an emphasis that reads a little bit more like, by what power or what name did people like you do this? And I bring this up because it ties into the Sanhedrin's observation that Peter and John were, were unschooled, ordinary men. This does not mean that they were dumb. That's not what it means at all. Don't, don't overread into the text like that. What it means is that they didn't go through rabbinic school. They didn't go through school to be a, a, a lawyer, a teacher of the Torah. They didn't do that. They aren't professional teachers. They're fishermen. And this is why the Sanhedrin is astonished. How is it that these two men, who are not schooled in theology, who are not schooled in doctrine, stand here before us and give us such a well-articulated argument? It doesn't make sense. They're astonished. And I'll say one last thing about this section before moving on. The NIV translates, um, they, they use courage. Maybe your Bible says boldness. You see that in verse 13. Some translations, they, they use different words, but what they're trying to get at is that it's almost like this political description of a person, of a politician who's able to stand before a council and give a well-thought-out, very bold, very straightforward argument. This is how it is. And that's the, that's the description that's used for Peter and John. Without fear. Without question, they can stand before the most powerful people in Jewish society and say, this is how it is. And so Luke recognizes that. Now this straightforwardness has the potential to expose them to danger. They're standing before the same council that just sentenced Jesus to execution. And yet without fear, without trembling, they proclaim the name of Jesus they speak with confidence, with courage, with boldness, regardless of the Sanhedrin's power and authority. Why? Well, we're going to get to an answer here at the ending of the story. Let's wrap this up. It says that, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let me say that again. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because... All the people were praising God for what, he, what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. For Peter and John, they spoke with courage and boldness to the most powerful people in Jerusalem because they witnessed Jesus conquer death. Like they, they saw him, they touched him, they spoke with him, after he died, like he died and three days later came back to life. 
And then Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Like they were there. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. And then Jesus gives them a command. He says, go, make disciples. He tells them to make disciples and to witness in Jerusalem. How can they stay silent? They could not help speaking about about what Jesus had done. Church, the same is true for us today. We must share what we have seen and what we have heard. We must share what we have witnessed God do in our own lives with the people that he has placed in our lives. So you have to ask yourself the same question that I asked my wife. What is God doing in your life? And if the answer is, I don't know, then I'm pushing you to consider whether or not you are truly surrendering to God every day or you're trying to be self-sufficient and rely on your own power and your own will and your own might. You see, this is going to be the battle for us for the rest of our lives. That self-sufficiency, like I said, it's embedded in who we are, in our culture, in our society. We're going to want to keep telling ourselves, man, we can do it by ourselves. We can do it by ourselves. We don't, we don't need anyone's help. Now, if you develop a habit in which you don't lean on God for the small things, you're probably not going to lean on him for the big things. And if you don't lean on him at all, Man, then you're not allowing God to do some amazing, incredible things in your life. That is when you don't have an answer to what is God doing in your life. You don't have an answer because you're not allowing him to. I want each and every single one of us to have an answer to that question. I don't want want you to have an answer to that question just, um, just to throw something out there. I want it to be like you have an answer to that question and it's burning inside of you to share that with someone else. So how do you get to that point? Well, a few things, a few small things I think that you can, you can incorporate into your day to help you answer that question. First off, surrender to God each morning. If this isn't something you do, I just, I want to encourage you to give it a try. You see, um, every morning I'm usually the first to, to get my son out of bed. He's going to be two next week. And so I walk into his room, I open the curtains, I turn off his sound machine. He's jumping in his crib. So I walk up to him and I tell him good morning, give him a kiss. And then I say, okay, buddy, let's pray. And we say a good morning prayer. And we say, God, thank you for this day. And God, would you be, would you make your presence known in our lives? And show us where you're leading us. And I'm doing that to develop a habit so that way when he's older and he wakes up in the morning, the first thing he does is he thanks God for the day. And he invites God to be a part of that day and leading him. So that way he can, he can have God showing him what he's doing in my son's life. Same can be true for you. When you get up, when you go make your coffee, when you exercise, whatever it is you do, I'm going to think the best of all of you. When you do that, just take a moment 
God, I give this day to you. Thank you for a new day. God, help me to feel your presence in my life and reveal to me what it is you're doing. Just a simple prayer. I promise it's going to lead you in the right direction for that day. So that's the first thing. Surrender to God each morning. Second thing, take note of what he's doing. All of you have a cell phone. Open, open a note and start, start making notes. What is, it that, what is it that you're experiencing every day? Are you feeling stress and anxiety? Are you experiencing broken relationships? Are things just not the way they're supposed to be? Start writing that down and to then take it to God. God, I need your help. God, I need your peace. That is your way of going back and saying, hey, look at what God's done in my life. Can I tell you how God has, has given me peace? Like I see that you are stressed and, and anxious. I've been there. Can I tell you how God lifted that off my shoulders? The third one, share what he has done. That's the whole point of, that's the whole point of giving your day to God. That's the whole point of writing down what he's doing in your life. If we do those first two steps and we don't share it, man, that's not good. Be considering who has God placed in my life for me to share the gospel with. And it starts with you just sharing what you've seen and what you've heard, what God has done in your life. You see, here at FBH, our vision for the next 10 years is for 25,000 people in Kings County to hear the gospel. Hear the gospel from you. You see, our work as pastors is to equip you to do the ministry. We want to give you the tools to share your faith, to be able to proclaim, like, you can't hold back. I've got to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. We're going we're gonna to share the gospel with 25,000 people when you share what God has done in your life. And we don't share it just to share and say, oh, we reached 25,000. No, we do it because we believe that Jesus transforms, that Jesus makes new, that Jesus breaks chains, whatever's holding you captive, whatever's crippling you, we believe that Jesus breaks that, that he sets you free. We believe that Jesus mends relationships, that he, he gives you a new identity. He calls you son, he calls you daughter. We believe that, and we want that for other people. And it takes us sharing what God has done in our lives. Church, I want to believe that there's, well, there's someone listening or someone present in this room who just needs to know that there is a God who loves them who made them and wants to be involved in your life in a very intimate way. And I'm here to tell you that God exists. And I'm here to tell you he gives you an invitation to follow him. I get it. We want to white knuckle it. We want to do everything by our own will, by our own effort. But we saw Peter, Peter and John, they said... There's no other way for salvation to happen other than receiving it from God. You can't earn it. 
So I'm going to pray here in just a moment. If you're in, if, if you're in that boat, those are the shoes that you're in. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just surrender to God. And after that, there's a prayer table back there. If you pray that prayer, man, head back there. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to follow him every day. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we recognize that you are so good. We recognize that you are holy. God, we recognize that by our own efforts, we don't even deserve to be talking to you, let alone to be called your daughters and your sons. But God, we thank you that even while we were still enemies to you, that you reconciled us back to yourself. That while we were dead in our sins, God, that your son Jesus died on our behalf. God, you are so loving and we're so thankful. God, we just want to give this day to you. Help us to see what it is you're doing in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate that to us? Help us to see what you're doing. And give us the courage and the boldness that Peter and John had to, to share that with the people who need hope. The people you've placed in our lives. God, again, we just thank you. If there's anyone in this room who is just feeling the weight of trying to do it themselves, and you're just ready to, to surrender and say, God, I need you, we're going to pray what's called the ABCs. It's A, God, we admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We're not perfect. This life is hard and we need a Savior. And B, we believe that Jesus is that Savior. That he took on our sin and nailed it to the cross and in return he has given us his perfect righteousness. We believe that. And C, we're choosing to follow you every single day. God, we love you.